This week, I'm going to spend a little bit of time building upon the foundation that we talked about last week. And to do that, we need to recap a little bit about what we talked about last week. So last week, I made this statement of the overarching theme of the Bible. And I said this, the Bible opens with an accusation and closes with the silencing of that accusation. We also spend a little bit of time looking at some of the passages in the Bible that kind of tear back the veil between, you know, the seen and the unseen and give us this insight into what really is going on in the universe. And the Bible describes this kind of rebellion, an angelic rebellion, in fact, against the character and the government of God. And all throughout the Bible, we see these glimpses, these tiny little cameos of of a dispute that's taking place between God and his government and the systematic accusation against God by the accuser. And at the end of the Bible in Revelation 12 uh, verse 10, we see a prophetic picture of the closing of that accusation. And And it reads this, it says, For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down so it's fascinating sort of this big picture of scripture to see the bible as the opening of an accusation and then the closing or the final closing and silencing of that accusation and if you recall from last week the accusation presented by satan in the garden of eden had three points to it and the first point was that god is unclear unreasonable and restrictive in nature The second point is that God is dishonest and untrustworthy. And the third is that God is selfish and actually only looking out for himself. And you might remember the story of Genesis chapter 3 where Satan leads Eve along this conversational journey and he begins by drawing her attention away from the vast panoramic picture of freedom that the Garden of Eden provides to the restriction and, and not being able to eat of one of many trees in the garden. And many of you know the story where the woman jumps to defend God and says, no, 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 it's, it's, it's only this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and we aren't allowed to eat of it because the day that we eat of it will surely die. And then what does Satan say? He says, no, 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 you're not going to die. God's lied to you. You've been led to believe something that's completely untrue. God is not, not only unclear or restrictive and unreasonable, he's also a liar. And at this point in the accusation, all we, all we have are two statements. But the third that he makes, which really brings this accusation to its climax, is the motivation at, at, attributed to God as to why he's acting that way. And the motivation that Satan says is, why is God unclear, restrictive, dishonest, and untrustworthy? And here's the, here's the motive Satan gives. He says, let me tell you something, Eve. God knows that in the day that you eat of that tree, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And the third and most terrible part of the accusation is that God is selfish and he's only looking out for himself. Now, the Bible opens with this. Scripture opens with this great conflict or this dispute, or as Seventh-day Adventists, um, we sometimes refer to it as the great controversy. There is a great controversy over nature, government, and the character of God. And you might also remember this this, uh, statement that I made by Dr. Richard M. Davidson. And he's one of the leading theologians in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he says, if you're correctly understanding Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're very likely to understand the rest of the Bible, the rest of Scripture. 
Because the reality is, is that almost all of scripture is a commentary on the opening chapters of Genesis. Now, last week I made this statement. I said, sin is a natural, natural and inevitable consequence of believing a false image of God. The reality is that sin just naturally and almost necessarily and inevitably occurs when we see God with a false picture. It's easy to think that, you know, when Eve eats of the fruit, that's the issue in the garden. But the eating of the fruit came at the end of the conversation. And it came at the end of something that happened in Eve's mind. What had happened is that she had started to see God in a different way. And the false picture of God had been inserted into her basic thinking and psychology. Satan couldn't have just gone up to Eve and tell her to eat of the tree. Satan had to replace something in her mind, and that was the way that she thought about God. You aren't going to be disobedient to, to if you believe that God is good and caring and kind and loving. Why would you disobey a God like that? You wouldn't. It's illogical. So Satan had to warp that way of thinking. And when she began to think that way, the actual act of eating the fruit was just a natural inevitable consequence of believing that false picture of God. And we talked a bit a little bit about this. Not a, not all sin is murder, but all sin is murderous in its intent. And the reality is that sin at the end of the day about is about me and mine and more over and above against God's will. At the end of the day, if you come between me and my desires, even though I might not murder you physically, I can have anger or frustration or annoyance with you in my heart. And Jesus says in the Gospels that that is murderous in its intent. The statement that we often say sometimes is, you're dead to me. And we might not even go so far as to actually do anything physical against somebody but we'll build walls in our mind in our hearts against people who have wronged us we don't want to hear about them we don't care about them we don't want anything to do with them and essentially it's all the same thing we murder them in our minds and lastly to wrap up our review of last week um, it is satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of god and he does that for a reason. He causes them to cherish false conception, conceptions of God so that they regard him, God, with fear and hate rather than with love. The whole thing boils down to those two words. So that, in other words, Satan has a purpose in why he is misrepresenting God's character. He does it for the purpose of destroying God's relationships with us, his creation. So that his creation, us, will relate to him with fear and hate rather than how he created them, out of love. And that is in the middle of this controversy that we're, that we're in right now. These questions that we need to answer. Who is God? What is he like? Can he be trusted? And how do we know? And last week I closed with this fairly provocative statement and I said this, if your internal picture of God doesn't look like the Jesus of the Gospels, then your picture's wrong. Some might think that's a bit harsh to say, you're wrong. Well, the fact of the matter is that Jesus himself comes and says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So if our basic internal picture of God doesn't look like the Jesus of the New Testament, our picture is in fact wrong. Now, with all of that review in mind, we're going to head now back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and we're, now we're going to look at uh, verses 6 through to 8. 
and read them with me as as we delve into this repercussions of what e what it's like for eve to believe this false picture of god genesis chapter 3 verse 6 through to 8 and it reads this so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband with her and he ate then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings and then they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day and adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the lord among the trees of the garden Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 is probably the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Imagine for those, especially if you're a parent, your child running from you in fear when, when you, you've done nothing to create that fear because a complete misrepresentation or misunderstanding about the situation. It says that Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the question has to be asked as we're reading the story here, why are they hiding? Why? And in a word, why are they hiding? Well, because they're afraid. In fact, when God comes down and asks where they are, that's exactly what Adam says in verse 9. He's, it says this, it says, Then the Lord called out to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he, Adam, responds and says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. Well, what are they afraid of? There's a couple of answers to this, and there's two. Shame and fear. Here's, here's where things get interesting. Notice verse 7, which says, And they knew that they were naked. Well, that's an interesting thing for Moses to write in, in the writing of Genesis, isn't it? I've always known when I'm naked. When I'm naked, I'm, I'm very well aware of it. And it's not like, you know, I'll wake up, get in my car, go to, off I go to work and I'll be like, oh, whoa, I guess I forgot to put my clothes on this morning. It just doesn't happen like that. So why would Moses go to the point of letting us know that after this sin took place, after this disloyalty and disobedience to God, they suddenly had an awareness that they were naked? Well, it's very interesting. Let's, let's take a quick look at Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, it records them as them, as, as, as them being naked. And it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, but were not ashamed. So was there a nakedness? Yes, there was a nakedness beforehand. But it wasn't a nakedness that was associated with shame or guilt. It was almost as though they were naked and they didn't know it. Because there's no shame, no guilt, no sense of their nakedness. And we're also, we also have some indications that there might have been sort of some, you know, robe of light of some sort, but they didn't have any garments like we do today. Now, this is interesting because the first thing that scripture says after they sinned was that they were aware that they were naked. And with that awareness came two things, shame and guilt. Adam and Eve are, are suddenly feeling naked and they're, they're feeling ashamed and they're feeling guilty for this transgression, transgression that they've committed against God. And their eyes are open and their natural intuition is to hide, to run and flee from the presence of God. And the question is, why? Had God done anything up to this point to communicate to them that they should be afraid? No, not at all. 
So what were they afraid of? And here's the crucial point, and don't miss this. Adam and Eve assume that their own internal feelings of shame and guilt are actually a reflection of God's attitude towards them. See, they're feeling a certain way internally, so when they hear God's voice, they instantly and incorrectly assume that God's attitude towards them is why they feel that way. But here's the remarkable thing. As the story unfolds, do you know why God is in the garden? God's in the garden to tell them that there's a way of escape and a way of escape has been made for them from their predicament. God comes into the garden to reestablish contact and to let them know everything's going to be okay to announce the good news and announce a judgment on the accuser. In other words, to put in, in layman's terms or put, put as simply as possible, God comes into the garden to be the very first preacher of the gospel. But their internal sense of shame and guilt just makes them sure that God is angry with them, that God is out to get them, and they run and hide in fear from God. Now notice what else happens here. A covering and a hiding takes place. With the awareness of nakedness, with shame and guilt, comes this desire to cover and to hide. When previously the Bible says that they didn't need coverings, it says that they, now it says they find fig leaves and they try to cover themselves. In verse 7 it says, And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The basic essence of this is that, that they're now leaning not toward dependence on God, but towards dependence on themselves. We will cover ourselves to protect us from the penetrating gaze of God himself, who's angry with us. This is the very first example in the whole of the Bible of righteousness by works. Essentially, they're saying we will do something to put us right with God. God is upset with us. God sees our nakedness. We will cover ourselves and we will rise to the occasion and all will be well if we do this. In fact, they're going to be covered covered as the story unfolds, but not just with leaves of a fig tree, something that will wilt away in time. They will be covered in the anticipation of the death of Jesus Christ with coats of skin, according to Genesis 3.21. Another thing that happens is this blame game. We'll pick it up in verse 9, and it, and it says this in verse 9. It says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So Adam responds and says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told, and he, this is God speaking, Who told you that you were naked? God essentially says, Who, who have you been talking to? You certainly didn't hear that from me. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And here comes God offering accountability. And notice that, that as God offers this, like, did you do this? And Adam has the, has the freedom to respond, yes, I did this. But notice his instinct. He doesn't even have to almost think about it. It's instinctual. It's almost automatic. The very first thing that he wants to do, and we kind of laugh at it, you know, we joke about it because we think it's kind of cute. He blames the woman. But just for a moment, let's put aside the humor of that situation and get, and, and, and get this. What's really happening here? 
in essence, it's self-preservation at the expense of somebody else. That's what Adam's doing here. He's saying, the woman that you gave me, gave to be with me, he's throwing this woman under the proverbial bus. At this point, Adam feels that somebody's going to pay for this transgression. Some, something's going to happen and somebody's going to have to have to take the fall for it. And Adam has no problem with taking his woman that he'd formerly been in love with and raptured with and shoving her in front of him. Almost as a shield and saying, you know, it's her. It was all her. In other words, he wants her to be in the place of danger, in the place of condemnation, in the place of death, rather than himself. It's all about this self-preservation. And there's even a bit of an attempt to blame God, but we won't really go into that. And God actually humors Adam and turns his attention to Eve and says, what is this you have done? And the woman, again, here, she doesn't, she doesn't have to think about it. The first two words out of her mouth are the serpent. It's instinctual. It's natural. It's almost a reflex for her. She doesn't even have to think about it. Her natural desire now is self-preservation. Both of their desires now are self-preservation at any cost to preserve oneself. The emotional landscape that's happening here in Genesis chapter 3 of shame, fear, covering, hiding, blaming has basically been the ongoing story of humanity from the day from that day all the way back there in Genesis 3 to today. Every one of us, you and I, to a greater or lesser extent wrestle with these things each day. In fact, there's the, there's a popular secular uh, psychology book where the basic thesis that the author was trying to put forward was that every single psychological pathology pathology everything that's wrong with people in the way that they think all mental problems and i'm not talking neurochemical problems here all i'm thinking is all the all the thinking problems when people become depressed or alienated or all these things that the the author is basically put forward this case that it all stems at its most basic root from guilt from guilt that all psychological pathologies, all psychological disorders come from an inescapable, overwhelming, oppressive sense of guilt. Now, many of us would have people in our lives that, that would think that we're, you know, absolutely crazy and complete nut jobs for believing in the Bible. They think we're just crazy to believe in an old book of supernatural stuff that it talks about. But for, the, for a book that is supposedly out of date and just a feel-good read about God of love or whatever, it sure does a very good job thousands of years ago of putting its finger on the pulse of the basic issue with humanity. I'll say it again. If all we had of the entire Bible was Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we would know more than enough to be saved eternally. If that were, if that were all that we had to study for the rest of our lives, we would have more than enough. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need the other books in the Bible. What it does mean is there's such a wealth and depth of information that can be obtained from just these three chapters. These first few chapters are absolutely overflowing with meaning and significance. So what is fundamentally taking place in the Garden of Eden? Well, essentially, it's a relationship of trust that's been broken. 
God had made an amazing garden with a huge amount of freedom and told Adam and Eve to have a blast. And the intention was to, for them to have a great time partaking in what God, God had created and getting to know him and each other and populating the earth and just generally enjoying themselves. But then the accuser shows up and says, no, 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 it's not all like that. You've been lied to. The situation has been misrepresented to you. It's not like that at all. And imagine in your own lives, if somebody comes up to you saying that one of your closest friends is not who you thought they were. They say something along the lines, you know, your friend, they're not who you think they are. Let me tell you about who they really are. Look at these pictures I have of your friend going into some unseemly places. I have text messages and email messages from your friend. And all of a sudden, you would, you would be in emotional turmoil. Because the picture that you have of your friend that you think is accurate is now being undermined. And the serpent presents his accusation and says, what you think is actually happening actually is not what's happening. And he, and he proclaims to say, I will tell you the truth of the matter. And it's against this basic back, backdrop that Adam and Eve are, ba- are presented with this choice. And the choice is, who do you trust? Who do you believe? Do you believe God or do you believe his accuser? Now, the question has to be asked, how do you heal a broken relationship? Because that's what we have in Genesis chapter 3, a broken relationship. And the first thing is clear. It's not with, with your strength. If I have a falling out with my wife, I, the first thing I, I will not say is I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do some push-ups, some squats. I'm going to do some cardio, get fit. That, that will help my relationship come back together. The reality is we cannot manhandle by our strength or physical force or fitness our relationships back into health and, and into happiness and into trust. So how do you put a relationship back together again? Well, there's a prolific author that writes this. She says, the exercise of force is actually contrary to the principles of God's government. And thank God that God is not like that. Not forcing, coercing, or manipulating his way in the universe. She continues and says, the exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love. And love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. So in answer to the question, how is, a broken, how is this broken relationship? How, how is this loyalty going to be put back together? Well, we just read that it can't be by God's power. And I want to emphasize that too. God possesses all of, all of the resources of omnipotence in the universe. And, and in basic terms of physic, physicality, God can do whatever he wants. But all of that strength in the universe can't put a relationship back together again. So how do you put a relationship back together? The truth is, that, and you and I all know it, there is no quick fix to a broken relationship. And I believe it takes three things, these three things to put a relationship back together again. It takes time, trust, and truth. Those three things 
time, trust, and truth. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have God committing himself to the process. God has been accused and he can't come into the garden as much as he would love to and just snap his fingers and make everything all right. If that had been the case, we would only have Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, and, and, and 4. Because chapter 4 would be the solution where he snaps his fingers. We have all of the rest of the Bible and what's going on. What, what is all this about? All these hundreds of pages of what is going on. Well, the truth of the matter is all of those pages is of God committing himself to the process of winning back the trust and the love and the loyalty of his creation. And you, know, you want to know what that's called? In a word, it's called covenant. God covenants himself to his people. A God who is love, that that God covenants himself with humanity and he relates to humanity over and over again on the basis of covenant. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam, Adam had a covenant with God and it was basically a covenant of obedience and trust. God says, I've given you a garden, I've given you life, I've given you a body, I've given you a spouse, I've given you everything that you will need to have a great time with and to live fulfilling and awesome lives. This is my part of the bargain. Your part of the bargain is to not eat of a certain tree and to have lots of kids and look after the garden. That's a fairly modest request from God, wouldn't you say? Take care of the garden, have lots of kids and stay away from this one tree. But that request was violated. So the covenant between God and Adam was broken. Adam and Eve tried to fix the covenant by patching themselves up. And when that patching didn't work, they tried to play this blame game of passing the buck. And Adam and Eve were actually striving to try and keep covenant. And, and, and just a quick note here, every one of us is born with a basic sense of morality and internal sense of justice. All of us have this kind of internal sense of what's right and wrong. In fact, a, a really prolific author by the name of C.S. Lewis, he illustrates this awesomely. Okay, He says, let's say there's a line of people waiting to get food at Fellowship Lunch. Let's say there's like, you know, a hundred people or something. If, if someone cuts in line, our natural response is to say, oh, cool, good on you. <laughs> no, not at all. Because not only is it an injustice to you and also to all those people behind you. And, and this is where C.S. Lewis, he uses this illustration and he says, someone cuts in line and someone pro protests that person cutting saying, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. What the person will not say, the person who's doing the cutting, will not say is, to hell with your standard. In fact, what the person tries to do is actually show that they're in compliance with that standard. So they might say something along the lines of, like, well, this, this lady was saving my spot, or, you know, I was here before, but I had to duck away, so ju I'm just coming back to my previous spot. In other words, what they're essentially saying is, you know, we both agree that cutting is wrong. I'm just showing you that I'm in compliance with the basic standard. And Adam and Eve knew full well that, the, that their covenant had been broken and intuitively they had a sense, I've got to make it right. I'll cover myself. That will make it right. I'll hide myself from the presence of God. That will make it right. I'll put Eve out there. That will make it right. I'll put the serpent out there. That will make it right. 
and God basically shows up in the garden and he says, you can't make it right. In and of yourselves, you can't make it right. The only one who can make it make this right is me. And I'm going to show you how I'm going to make it right. And that's the story of Adam and Eve and God preaching to them the very first sermon on the gospel. The gospel of his covenant, the gospel of him striving to bring back a relationship with them. And he does that to us today. He preaches to us the gospel of his covenant. And next time we're going to look at this theme of covenant and the nature of God's covenant with you and with me.